On today's episode, Ashley shares part two of the infamous Menendez family tragedy. Welcome to Crime Bar. morning okay so this is a long part two so we're not going to chat i'm just going to jump yeah, right in hold on to your butts and stay silent yeah. what you're saying yeah basically mm-hmm. keep the chatting to a minimum okay so where we left off oh my god sorry i just skipped towards the very end <laughs> anyway so the conviction <laughs> <laughs> okay so where we left off was the boys killed their parents they sat down and cried while they waited for the police to show up mm-hmm. uh but nobody shows up no sirens, no police, no neighbors. The only noise in the house came from the TV in the den that their parents had been watching. And even they knew that like this has not happened in a neighborhood like Beverly Hills. So they expected that multiple shotgun blasts was going to result in the police showing up, like obviously within seconds. Uh, but no one came. They said every moment that went by felt like an hour. And they were so hysterical that like they didn't even realize what was happening at first. Or that, I mean, nothing was happening, I should say. Like, Mm -hmm. so they just, they're in shock. They're both sobbing, trying to console each other. And then they realize it's been like 10 minutes, but clearly no one has called the police. So now they're like, well, what do we do? Like they're starting to calm down and realize like what they've done and that no one's coming. Yeah. And I don't believe that this was premeditated in like the traditional sense because I feel like they were scared and they just wanted to defend themselves and they got guns to do that. Um, but then they just acted in the heat of the moment yeah, and didn't actually have a plan. And what I forgot to mention in the first part is that part of the reason that they ended up getting guns is because that they had discovered supposedly that their parents had guns in their master bedroom. And then... The other thing that freaked them out in that moment, other than the fact that they definitely pushed Jose to a point that they were terrified of for their lives, mm-hmm. the fact that Jose closed the den doors behind him and Kitty when they went back in was something they'd never seen him do. Like no one had ever shut those doors before. So it was just so unsettling, unsettling and they just felt like the moment the doors opened, they were going to come over. out and kill them. So obviously because I'm trying to make this argument that I don't think it was premeditated. They fully expected the police to show up. So how, like, unless they just, their plan was to be arrested. Like, it, there's just no plan, yeah. you know? Like, no, there's, of course. There's, there's no plan in it. They weren't trying to hide this. No, because they didn't think it through. They just did it in the heat of the moment. So they start panic thinking, and they get in the car, and they leave the house, and they try to come up with a plan, like an alibi or explanation or anything, but they're not thinking straight. So they go to the movies and they buy tickets to try to create an alibi. 
But the ticket stubs for were for a 10.30 p.m. showing, and the murders happened at, like, 10. So that was just sort of pointless. It didn't help them. So they leave, and they start driving around. They're, like, in total shock. They can't believe what, what they've done, and they are assuming that as soon as they go back to the house, it's just going to be swarming with police and neighbors and everything like that. So they're just driving aimlessly, and they go up to Mulholland and throw their shotguns over the side of the, like, into the canyon. Mm-hmm. They go back to the house and they are floored to find no one is there still. Literally 12 shotgun blasts. I think it was more than 12 shotgun blasts had gone off at 10 p.m. in a quiet, super quiet neighborhood. neighborhood. Yeah. And later on, neighbors say that they did hear. So ton- yeah, mind my own business. tons of neighbors heard and just didn't do anything. Yeah. And so at this point, when they go back to the house, it's been like an hour since the murders. So that's even crazier. Eric said that he, when they got back in, he ran to the den and he broke down. He was hysterical seeing what they'd done. And Lyle came in and grabbed him and told him to leave the room. But Lyle was in the midst of calling 911 himself. So he's also upset and distracted. And in the 911 call, uh, you can hear Eric in the background like yelling and crying obviously I'm, I don't want to play that, but you can like find it online. A lot of people think that Lyle sounds like he's faking it. And I kind of agree. Like okay. it's definitely sounds like he's faking and he's like, somebody killed my mom and dad. And like, so it just doesn't sound, it sounds so bad, like terrible acting. Eric said at this point, he's like almost delirious with hysteria. Like nothing from the time of the shooting on was clear or logical. It was just foggy, extreme chaos. And he says he has no, he had no idea that Lyle was even calling the police. Like they hadn't even come up with a story or a plan that he understood. So he was surprised. Like he's like, who the hell is Lyle on the phone with? You know? And like, so it was just a confusing yeah. moment. And then Lyle didn't expect him to run into the den. So the police show up the house within 20 seconds the second of Lyle's time. phone call. Yeah. Well, the only time they were called. Were they called 911? No one had called 911 after the shotgun blasts. And and Lyle and Eric had expected that the neighbors would call the police when they heard shotgun blasts. I don't know if I didn't listen correctly, but I thought that Eric and Lyle called 911 after they committed the murders themselves and then no one came. No, no, no. They they shot their parents and then it just assumed that a neighbor would call the police. So they sat down and waited oh. for the police. So in the literally minutes ago, I just said it wasn't premeditated and they weren't planning on, they were planning on getting caught if they called themselves. I take that all back. For some reason, I called them calling 911 themselves. So, well, me. Th- so then, so then this, they did. This sort of opportunity to get away with it falls in their lap. So then they're like, what do we do? And they go to the movies and try to create this weird story. They get rid of the guns. I don't think the guns were ever recovered either. Okay. Um, they come back thinking in that hour, maybe someone has finally called the police or maybe yeah. a neighbor is snooping around or whatever. And that didn't happen either. So Lyle calls 911 himself. Gotcha. And within 20 seconds, the cops, come. the cops are there. So they had to drag Eric out of the den because he was so hysterical and didn't want to leave his mom. Mm-hmm. Eric says he remembers Lyle asking him on the way to the police station, are you going to be able to say that we were at the movies? So it just sounds like Lyle thought they had come up with a sort of like loose plan 
Eric's in his own world and not following yeah. along. And it was just hysterical. Cut. Yeah. It's just so much going on. But the police that interviewed the boys that evening determined that they were not suspects. So these two white guys are let go. They're treated and viewed as victims. And the police hadn't even tested their hands for gunpowder residue or searched their vehicles. The boys say later that they'd done this in the heat of the moment out of fear and that they had sort of t- tried to take an opportunity, this to get opportunity away with to it. get away with it, but they really didn't think it through. And they just were not on the same page. So claim that this is some big masterminded plot is just crazy but my point is they were just as surprised that the police didn't figure it out that night and viewed them like so it was just like everything that happened they they weren't expecting it and eric said later in an interview i bet you they've changed their policies since then and i was like "Uh, no dude the same rules apply today like if you have white skin and money to burn you're probably going to get away with a lot and so this thing this kind of thing like does not happen in Beverly Hills, so obviously it's all over the news on Monday. And Bob, that captain from the sh- the fishing trip on Saturday, sees on the news what happened, and he said that he turned to his roommate and said, "Their sons did it. I know they did." Oh, chills. <laughs> he said he just felt like this gut instinct after experiencing such a weird ride with yeah, all of them so just off. just the day before. So the theory that first circulated is that this was tied to the mafia because Jose was such a wealthy and unliked businessman and the crime scene was so, so brutal. It's kind of so like savage. with yeah. like the gun. Quite a few people who worked with Jose throughout his career have stated that when they learned of his murder, they weren't surprised. <sighs> They've all said that as bad as that sounds, he just seems like the type of person who would be murdered. <laughs> Good thing to say not like he lit up the room no I know I mean it's like and that says so much because like how bad do you have to be for people to be like you know what I could definitely I see, see this I could see someone murdering you yeah this checks out so the next morning on Monday the police are obviously still at the home and it's all taped off and Lyle shows up he told the police that he and Eric would be staying with their tennis coach and that they wanted to get some stuff from the house so the cops ask like what stuff and he goes clothes and our tennis gear And obviously they're surprised by the tennis gear part. So they asked, where is your tennis gear? And Lyle said, in the room where our parents were killed. Eric says for the first few days after the murders, he was just unraveling. He and Lyle weren't discussing what they'd done or this sort of weird plan that doesn't seem very solid. So Eric was like a ticking time bomb. And he said he played tennis obsessively just to keep his hands busy and keep his thoughts from taking over. Tennis had always been a means to spend hours away from his dad, so this was just his usual method of coping. It wasn't weird. Lyle and Kitty were known to be addicted to shopping, and it was something they did all the time. It was their method to coping with depression, and so when Lyle started going on lavish shopping sprees, it didn't strike Eric or their extended extended family as odd. Yeah. But even though the cops had cleared the brothers as suspects, they were heavily investigating Jose's business to see if the murder was, you know, connected to work. So that's why someone from Jose's office informs detectives that one of Jose's business credit cards has been given to Eric and Lyle to cover living expenses. So the cops start monitoring the credit card usage and pay closer attention to their behavior. Court documents show that in the weeks after the murders, the brothers received a life insurance payout for the death of their parents for $400,000, which today is more like Mm $900,000. 
The same documents show that Lyle spent over three hundred thousand dollars, and Eric spent just under ten thousand within five weeks of the murders. That is some extensive retail therapy. Yes, but Eric said Lyle's spending definitely was a bit higher than normal. A bit. Yeah, but that his spending about $9,000 was pretty typical of his lifestyle. Lyle bought two new Rolex watches, a new Porsche, and invested in a restaurant in New Jersey. At least he made a smart business decision. I know. Eric bought a Rolex and traded in his convertible for a Jeep Wrangler. I'm just like, That's I so have like reasonable. such a, like, I know, but I have like such a crush on him and then like picturing him driving a Jeep Wrangler. So I'm like, cute. oh my gosh. So humble. So to the outside, it seems like the boys are doing just fine, happily spending their dead parents' money. But actually, Eric was a mess. He started having suicidal fantasies and dreams of dying and confesses to his cousin what he's been thinking about. So his cousin insists that he go to a psychologist to get help. So he starts seeing a man named Dr. Ozeal. Within one of his first meetings, he breaks down and confesses that he and his brother murdered their parents. So Dr. Ozeal asks that Lyle join them for a session. Lyle joins and not only had it known that Eric was going to see a therapist, but he was definitely caught off guard to find out that he had confessed. Mm -hmm. So Lyle's furious. He's yelling at Eric and at Dr. Ozeal. He's freaking out that this means the therapist can go to the authorities. So Dr. Ozeal tells the brothers that he can go to the police, but he would be willing to keep this between them if the brothers were interested in going into business together. Obviously, they, I know. So they both see right through this. So they get up and leave. It turns out Dr. Ozeal had been recording all of these sessions without the patient's knowledge, which is a big no-no. He definitely got his license revoked. Oh, oh, oh. Just wait. No, it's, he oh, he's so much worse oh, than okay. that. He takes it one step further. He's married with kids, but he's been carrying on an affair with one of his patients, a woman named Judalon Smith. So he had not only been telling her all about the things that Eric had been sharing, but when Lyle came to the session, Dr. Ozeal had Judalon hide on the other side of the wall and listen in. Then when his blackmailing plan failed, he told Judalon where he was stashing the tapes of the session and told her, if anything happens to me, take the tapes to the authorities and they'll know what happened. So she keeps this secret until Dr. Ozeal breaks up with her. So she wants revenge on him, obviously. So she goes straight to the hiding place, takes the tapes to the police, and tells them everything she knows. It's like a soap opera. Yeah. Then this is like seven months after the murders in March of 1990. So Lyle's arrested first, and a warrant for Eric is also issued, but he was actually out of the country. He was in Israel playing tennis. But when he was told that Lyle had been arrested and that he was going to be arrested too, he immediately got on a plane and returned to L.A. and turned himself in. Mm -hmm. He said it never occurred to him to run away, even though he could have. He said he just couldn't have imagined abandoning his brother like that. So this story of a wealthy couple being murdered in their Beverly Hills mansion was already huge news. But once their sons were arrested for the murders, it just became a spectacle. So I feel like anyone in Los Angeles dabbles in entertainment in some capacity at some point. Mm -hmm. So it's not weird at all that Eric and his friends had regularly collaborated on writing screenplays prior to the murders. But eerily, one of the screenplays he wrote was about a young man who kills his parents to collect the life insurance money. Oh, Eric. Yeah. Part of it reads, quote, 
A gloved hand is seen gripping the doorknob and turning it gently. Good evening, mother. Good evening, father. His voice is of attempted compassion, but the hatred overwhelms it. All light is extinguished, and the camera slides down the stairs as screams are heard behind. So Eric and his friend wrote that screenplay together, but then after it was completed, Eric said he wanted to rework some of the scenes, and his friend didn't think much of it because they did that all the time. But after the murders, his friend said that he reread the script and realized that Eric had rewritten the murder to be identical to the way Jose and Kitty had been murdered in the scene of the crime. At the point that he reread the script, the boys hadn't been arrested yet, so he didn't really know what to do or like even what to think about it. And like it obviously didn't prove anything, but it was a pretty wild piece of information to not share with the police. So the Menendez murder trial begins in 1993, and Court TV broadcasts it for the world to watch. This type of thing was brand new, like being able to watch a live broadcast of a real, very sensational murder trial was very exciting. Mm-hmm. But it also seemed kind of like an open and shut case. Like the brothers said on, t- like unknowingly said on tape that they did it and they at no point did they ever deny it. Um, so it seemed more like the trial was just going to be to determine the, the conviction. Yeah. They didn't try the brothers together, but they instead chose to do two trials in one room simultaneously. So there was one judge, one prosecutor for each brother two juries, and then two defense lawyers, one for each brother. And Eric's lawyer, Leslie Abramson, was a badass. Okay. Like, she was notorious for being a ball-busting, aggressive lawyer, and she was very highly respected by colleagues. Leslie and the brothers formed a really tight bond. She was a very, like, tough love, mama bear type of maternal figure to Eric and Lyle during the trial. And I think it's very easy to see that in her arguments. Like she's going to bat for these brothers with every fiber of her being. She even told friends that if she could adopt them, she would. It says everything. (laughs) Yeah. So lawyers are essentially storytellers. Like both sides need to tell the jury their version of the story, their perspective. And Leslie's lawyering in this case was so well done that videos of her closing arguments are shown in law schools even today. And I like especially appreciate that because sometimes when I see this like badass female lawyer just like annihilating someone Mm -hmm. with her arguing skills, I'm like, I missed missed my calling. I felt that way when, did you watch the second um, Making a Murderer? I don't think so. Oh my gosh. Okay. He gets like the most badass chick lawyer who is just like she's so she's just amazing or like sarah paulson when she played in the oj simpson trials she just no she wasn't a badass no she fudged it all up oh take this out yeah i'll take it out i like i just like sarah paulson so I think oh she's i so love badass. no i love sarah but yeah, paulson take but all she's, that out. she's portraying someone who failed miserably got it okay ignore everything that was said and cut that please okay So it was decided that Eric and Lyle would both take the stand and testify about the lifelong abuse they suffered and how it culminated in their parents' murder. And defendants aren't always called to the stand, so I think it really spoke to Leslie's confidence that the brothers would be able to provide really compelling accounts, but also handle the pressure of being cross-examined. So Lyle takes the stand first, and this is where I'm giving our big, big trigger warning that essentially applies to the rest of the episode. So okay. if you don't want to hear very graphic details of child abuse, just don't listen now. 
So he explains in graphic detail that when he was eight years old, Jose called him into the bathroom and shut the door behind him. He made Lyle take off his pants and Jose inserted a toothbrush into Lyle's rectum. Oh my God. He said this started happening on a regular basis. Sometimes it was a toothbrush and sometimes it was one of Jose's shaving tools. Between the testimony and then interviews later that Lyle gives in life, it doesn't sound like he ever interpreted this abuse as anything but something that was bad. Like some kids are manipulated into thinking sexual abuse is some form of love, but I don't think it was the case with Lyle. Mm -hmm. Because of how isolated he was, he didn't know for certain that it was wrong, but it didn't feel right to him either. He said the abuse slowly progressed with Jose using various objects, then forced oral copulation, and then eventually he started anally raping Lyle with his penis. And Lyle's eight years old. He said after the first time he was crying and when it was over, Jose asked him why he was crying and he said, you hurt me. And Jose apologized and said he didn't mean to hurt him and that he loved him. Lyle also testifies to Kitty's own inappropriate behavior. He said he often slept in the same bed as his mom all the way through puberty. He didn't really specify abuse, but just that it was very inappropriate and there was lots of cuddling and it just didn't feel right. He also testified to Kitty, like, for what reason is unclear to me, that well through adolescence, she would make him take his pants off so she could inspect his genitals. And sometimes... That's definitely not normal. Of course not. And sometimes she would bathe him, even as a teenager. Ugh. Lyle said that he and his brother didn't really know the abuse was wrong, and their father norm normalized it as he did it. He would tell them it was normal and that it was all part of making them better athletes. So, for example, in public, when the boys were getting ready for, like, a tennis match or a swim meet, Jose would massage the boys, like, right there in front of everyone. He'd massage their arms, their shoulders, their legs. Now, obviously, athletes do get massages, so if you're looking at this from the perspective of someone who doesn't know about the abuse, I can see how you could justify this guy massaging his sons in yeah. preparation for a match. So because none of the adults seeing this said anything or acknowledged it as wrong or weird, that helped convince the boys that when Jose did stuff like this in private, that it was somehow related to making them better athletes. Both Eric and Lyle said that Jose had history books with passages outlined describing ancient Greek soldiers who would massage each other and have sex with each other before going into battle and that it like bonded them and made them closer and made them better fighters. He would tell them about this to the point that it's totally normalized to them and they assume everyone else's dads are also doing this. But they don't have enough contact with other kids to actually verify that, no, this is not normal. They also crave approval and attention from their father and spending time with him was a rarity. So when he would spend time alone with them, it felt like a privilege and further confused their feelings about what was really going on. So I did not include all of the details of Lyle's testimony. He was on the stand for many days detailing an entire childhood's worth of abuse. So I slimmed it down a bit, but I mean. I'm getting the idea. There's, you get the idea and it's all online. And so, so he detailed to the courtroom the horrific sexual abuse his father inflicted on him. And then he admitted that as a kid, he started to repeat the same abuse on his younger brother, Eric. So during this point, in the footage from the trial, 
as Lyle is explaining to the courtroom how he would take his little brother out to the woods behind their house with a toothbrush and repeat the same thing Jose had done to him. Eric is crumbling with every word. His face is getting redder. He's gripping the chair harder. The veins in his forehead and neck are visibly exploding, and he starts to cry until he is just full-on sobbing. So a lot of people tried to argue that this abuse defense was just BS. But the counter-argument is, if you watch Lyle's emotional testimony on the stand, and you watch Eric's reaction to it, no one can act like that. It's the most disturbing and raw and compelling thing to watch. And no one is that good at acting. No. Like, especially two kids who have never done it or trained for it or it's anything like that. an authentic like reaction. Yeah. And I, during the whole testimony, uh, Lyle's a mess also. Like, he's very emotional about it. Their entire lives, their dad drilled into their heads that if they ever told this secret, he would kill them. He told them he would rip their guts out. So above all else, the details of the abuse was something they never shared with anyone ever. So to go from that to describing in graphic detail your deepest, darkest, most shameful secrets to a huge room full of strangers, and then in front of cameras where you know there are millions of people in their living rooms watching this, that alone is traumatizing. And then to be labeled a liar is unimaginable. Disgusting. So in reference to hearing Lyle's testimony on the brutal abuse he and Eric suffered, the prosecutor said, quote, I thought the testimony was very compelling, just like I think watching Laurence Olivier act is very compelling, too. Asshole. So after Lyle's testimony, it was Eric's turn. And Eric said that Lyle was always the emotionally stronger of the two. But the weight of the trial and the pain of testifying had just crushed him. He said seeing the impact it had on his brother terrified him because if it crushed someone as strong as Lyle, then Eric just didn't stand a chance. He got on the stand and said it was like his brain shut off. He couldn't think straight. He couldn't stop crying. It was almost impossible to speak a full sentence without breaking down. And similar to Lyle's testimony, I can't possibly fit in all the details, so I'm just going to condense it. He corroborated what Lyle said and admitted that the first time he was molested, it was by Lyle. And then not long after this, Jose started to abuse Eric as well. Eric said that for years, unlike Lyle, he believed the abuse was actually his dad's way of expressing love, and he didn't know that it was wrong. But he said one day he remembers that changing, and he realized that this was really, really wrong. He was really young and in his bedroom, and he heard his parents fighting, and their argument became physical. Then his dad barges into Eric's room and violently rapes him. He said it had never been like this before and he was terrified and confused and he couldn't stop crying. And when it was over, his dad said, why do you have to cry all the time? Why can't you be more like your brother? You'll get used to it. Eric says that one of the ways that his mom punished him as a kid was to lock him in her closet. And the length of time varied drastically. Sometimes it was only for an hour or two. Other times it would be overnight. Like she'd put him there in the afternoon and then let him out the next morning. She would give him Tupperware dishes to go to the bathroom in. And he said that this started to happen so often that he would hide food and water in the closet in preparation. During the trial, neither side could find 
a single person, whether it be family member or friend or colleague who had a nice word to say about Jose. 51 witnesses took the stand and literally no one said a single positive thing about him, even his own family. Jose's sister Marta said, quote, he would have the right words to ridicule and intimidate and humiliate and manipulate anyone that was present so he could control. Leslie presented six weeks worth of testimony from Eric and Lyle's relatives from both Jose's side and Kitty's side of the families and every last one of them corroborated the toxic and abusive environment the boys grew up in. And it is extremely rare for any type of case where all of the witnesses called to the stand rally around and support the accused and speak so poorly of the victim. So it seems that only the cousins who were like all the same age as the brothers were aware of the sexual abuse going on. The adult relatives claimed and or insinuated that they were not aware of sexual abuse, but they could say that the boys were definitely abused mentally and emotionally. And Eric said that sitting through this part of the trial was unbelievable because some of the stories his relatives and family friends had recounted were ones that even he had forgotten about. So it's so striking to hear these stories that stick out and scarred the the witnesses. He doesn't even remember. It's like just another day. His childhood is such a mess of trauma, horrible trauma, that some of it just blends together and doesn't even stick with him. Their cousin Andy testified that when they were young, like nine years old, Eric asked Andy if it was normal for dads to massage their sons. And Andy asked, like, what do you mean? And Eric said, you know, like, massage your penis. Does your dad do that to you too? Their cousin Diane lived with them for about a year when they were all kids and the environment was so awful and toxic that she had to leave. She said the bedroom she was in had two twin beds and one night when she was getting ready to go to sleep, eight-year-old Lyle came in and asked, can I sleep down here with you in the other bed? I'm scared to sleep in my room. And she asked why he was afraid, and he told her that his dad comes into his room and touches him down there, and he pointed, like, to his groin area. So Diane marches out, finds her Aunt Kitty, and repeated what Lyle had just told her. Kitty has no reaction, and all she says is, no, you're wrong, that's not true, go to bed. And it was never spoken of again. All of the cousins testified that in all the years they'd been around Eric and Lyle, even the ones who had temporarily lived with them, because apparently a lot of them lived with them throughout their childhood, Uh they can't ever remember seeing or hearing about, about the boys having any friends. They all testified that it seemed like an open secret that Kitty knew what was going on and didn't want to do anything about it. Both Eric and Lyle at different times to different cousins confessed various forms of abuse they were experiencing The boys just never confessed to each other. The cousins agreed that when Jose was alone with one of the boys, it was just this like silent understanding that no one was allowed to interrupt. And in fact, no one was even allowed to go onto the same floor that they were on. So Kitty's family says that she was a very fun, very happy and almost aloof person, like such a Libra. But as she got older and throughout the years with Jose, she changed significantly She became nastier, more critical, and her temper was as bad as Jose's. Like, it would frighten the cousins, and it was frightening to her sons. She became a raging alcoholic, and her therapist later testified that she also had a prescription pill addiction in addition to the alcoholism. And Eric describes his mom as having, like, two personalities. One was calm and quiet, 
the other one was chaotic and hurtful and angry and like really unpredictable. He said like she'd be calm one minute staring off into space and then she would like snap out of it and go to the cabinet and just start throwing the dishes onto the ground, shattering them one by one. Severely unhappy woman. Yeah. So remember Kitty had attempted to commit suicide once by taking an overdose. Mm -hmm. That's when she started to see a psychologist who testified that it was very apparent that Kitty was deeply depressed and anguished and she was very fearful. And then after briefly meeting her husband, he assumed that the husband was playing a big role in it, but he didn't know the extent of what was going on in their home. And then she died. So he wasn't treating her very long. Kitty's sister, Joan, said that their own family life growing up was very contentious. Their father was extremely volatile and abusive, but their mother never left him. So she thinks that abuse being normalized to Kitty in that way, and then also seeing her mom never leave, she stayed through all of it, laid the groundwork for Kitty to stay in her marriage to Jose. Kitty would get angry and tell her sons that she hated them and wished they'd never been born and that they ruined her life and her chance to be something and do something with her life. And her niece Diane remembers Kitty telling her once, don't ever have children. They only create a wedge between a man and his wife. No, marrying a rapist is what does it. And I also like the fact that she said that and she, when she admitted to the boys that she knew of the abuse and blamed them, it's just indicative of like her twisted logic Mm -hmm. that like, her husband yeah her husband's not the monster if these little boys hadn't come into their lives everything would be fine and her family never even thought that she wanted kids so when she had eric and lyle it was super surprising their cousin al lived with them for a time as a teenager and said a lot of bad things happened when he was there but only now as an adult does he see how bad it really was and what was really going on but as a teenager he just he didn't really comprehend it all He said one time he heard what sounded like a glass breaking. So he went to the kitchen to find his Aunt Kitty throwing the cups and plates onto the floor and shattering them one by one. Another time Al said he was alone in the kitchen. He opened the cabinet above the stove looking for spices. And he was said he was just stunned and stared at it because it was full. Top to bottom, side to side of orange prescription filled bottles with like white caps, all with his aunt's name on them. And Kitty walks in and she saw what he was looking at and screamed at him to never look in that cabinet again, slams the doors, and then walks away. Both boys testified about Jose showering with them regularly, and Al said he knew of it. He said that Jose would be like, okay, time to take the boys in for their shower. And Al thought that that was so weird because he was the same age as the boys and he was definitely old enough to bathe by himself, so he knew his cousins were too, and it seemed odd that Jose was going to go bathe them. Mm -hmm. So he says one time during one of these showers, he heard one of the boys yell out, like, ah, kind of thing. So he gets up and he starts walking towards the bathroom and Kitty yelled at him to come back and sit down and said, you are not going over there. Al also told a story that one time when he was in Lyle's room, he noticed a Tupperware container under Lyle's bed. So he started to go over it and grab it and Lyle was like, no, don't touch that. But Al had already grabbed it, and he said it was full of feces. And when he was like, what the fuck, man? Lyle said, well, sometimes I get really nervous, and I don't want my mom to know I need to go to the bathroom, and I don't want to leave my room, so I just do it in there, and I close it up. Oh, God. These poor boys. So with any abuse, 
obviously, especially abuse of young children, isolation and secrecy is key. The more isolated they are, the more you instruct them to keep secrets, the less they can decipher what's normal and not normal, what's healthy and unhealthy. So Leslie argued, child abuse is not an excuse to murder, but child abuse creates a fearful child. And her point is that, you know, that then lays the groundwork for illogical bad decisions, but that Eric and Lyle were not a danger to society. And the prosecution's argument was disgusting. They made that BS remark about how compelling the testimony was. But they also claimed that, quote, men could not be raped because they lack the necessary equipment to be raped. And they also claimed that Eric was homosexual. So that automatically means that sexual acts between he and his father was consensual and cannot be considered abuse. So their whole case was just based on Eric and Lyle committing murder for financial gain. They've also said all of this with literal child porn on the bulletin board. Leslie placed nude photos up in the courtroom that Jose had taken of the brothers when they were kids, faraway shots and close-up shots of their genitals. And at one point, Leslie even went to the nude photos of the boys and placed thumbtacks in all the areas the boys say Jose used to push thumbtacks into. So how the prosecution can literally be faced with that type of evidence and still say what they did is beyond me. After a month, Eric's jury was deadlocked and they declared a mistrial. Then not long after, Lyle's jury was also deadlocked and they also declared a mistrial. So this was humiliating for the district attorney, Gil Garcetti. So he announces right away that the DA's office will be trying the brothers again. The number of people involved in this case who scoffed at the idea that the stories of abuse were lies and just a weak attempt to get them acquitted are stupid people. Like they are literal stupid people. And it's crazy. Well, it's like they hear the whole like bought a Porsche, got Rolexes, and they've created this narrative and then completely dismissed everything else. It's a lot easier to look at this story from a surface level and roll your eyes And just say, oh, these little brats, they killed their parents for money. Mm -hmm. But hearing the horrific details of their childhood and the abuse is really hard. Like, no one wants to hear about abuse, especially abuse of children. I avoid it at all costs. And I admittedly believed that dumb surface level story. So I got into this story thinking we were going to make fun of rich kids and it was going to be easy. No. And so... I don't, I don't like this either. And I truly avoid this and I, I I can't handle it, but it's the reality. It's the reality. And it's so horrific that so many people, like it just, it angers and it disgusts me to no end to hear these adults, especially adults in a field where they're regularly faced with crimes like this, like lawyers and police and stuff like that. When they're like, oh, well, Jose was married to a woman and he was having multiple affairs with women. So the idea that he was molesting little boys is crazy. Like that has zero relevance. An adult's sexual orientation and who they choose to be in romantic relationships with has like adult romantic relationships. I mean, and that has nothing to do with whether they are capable of abusing others. A pedophile is a pedophile. It's just a sick and twisted person who is harming children. But even in an interview with Barbara Walters years after all of this, she mentions the rumors about Eric being gay and kind of like asks if when his father was abusing him, if he felt like he was gay, as in like enjoyed it. I was just like, 
Barbara Walters asked Eric this. Yes. Coincidentally, I just read this article this morning about how uh, Ricky Martin, like, looked back at this before he had come out, like, years before, that in an interview with her, she wouldn't stop grilling him about his sexual orientation. And he said he felt so violated. Of course. And I'm just like, what was it with, like, these different times that where you just, like, nothing was off. It was so wrong. And it's just not relevant. Really doesn't (laughs) matter here. Literally doesn't matter. So obviously all of this abuse doesn't justify committing murder. And I know I've told this whole story in a very sympathetic manner towards Eric and Lyle. And I am in no way saying they were right to do what they did because they weren't. But it's important to know the real story. Absolutely. Everything, everything should always be put into context, I think. A lot of the female reporters and experts who followed the case at that time believed that the claims of abuse were real. And a lot of the men didn't. They just simply didn't believe it. So I think if these were two young women who were on trial for doing this, and it was two young women who were detailing to the courtroom how often their father raped them, this whole story would be different and the outcome would be different. But society doesn't want to believe that boys can be abused and that boys can be raped by their fathers because that doesn't align with this ridiculous masculine expectation we put on boys. This idea that boys don't express pain because they're too strong and they can't be victimized because they're supposed to be the big ones in charge. They should not have killed their parents, but that doesn't mean that they weren't victims of lifelong horrible abuse. So their story deserves empathy and it deserves to be heard. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay for their crimes. It just means we as a society needs to find the balance between compassion and justice because then maybe this won't continue to happen. Like if they had lived in a world, in a society that had normalized believing victims and helping victims, especially if the victim is a male, maybe they wouldn't have taken their parents' lives and things would be different for everyone today. So a year and a half later, the second trial begins. This time the brothers are tried together, so there's only one jury. And Judge Weisberg, the same judge from the first trial, is presiding over this one, too. So he already knows this case inside and out. And he's, you know, essentially he's got a trial run when it comes to both sides' arguments and all of the evidence. So he does something that's almost impossible to believe. In trial number two, he blocks almost all evidence from trial number one from being entered. This means the defense cannot bring in any abuse of any kind. They can't bring on any witness that will mention abuse of any kind. There are no cameras allowed in the courtroom this time, so that alleviates a lot of public pressure and opinion and interest. So it's pretty insane. And then they also had like the stress of just getting an unbiased jury because, you know, that first one was televised and it was watched by everybody. So that's like expecting to get an unbiased jury for like a second OJ trial. Like it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So the defense was not allowed to share stories or any background explaining fear or intimidation or grooming the boys experienced. So the judge basically set up the trial ahead of time by like puppeteering it in this way. Mm-hmm. He forced it to look like the boys were in fact just rich white kids who brutally murdered their parents for cash and there's nothing else to the story. I just want to speed through the trial this yeah. time. He changed the rules. Like, he literally changed the rules, though. He tied the defense's hands and cleared a path for the prosecution to win. And he knew what he was doing. So his colleagues, even to this day, say that his rulings make no sense. And it looks, in their professional opinion, like he was being influenced. 
and what's interesting is there are very distinct factors that support that idea. So Judge Weisberg was the presiding judge in 1992 in the trial for the officers who were being tried for the beating of Rodney King. And when those men were acquitted, it sparked the Los Angeles riots that rocked the city. So a lot of people believe a hung jury in the first Menendez case was humiliating to an already humiliated judge, and he wasn't going to let it happen again. But it also seemed like he had a vendetta against Leslie Abramson, that badass lawyer I was talking about. Because uh, she was so ruthless. Like, that was part of what I enjoyed about watching the first trial's footage. Because she All just, buster. She annihilated this dude on a regular basis at every turn. So his ego did not like it. No. And he, like, constantly threatened to hold her in contempt for disrespecting his courtroom. But, yeah. like, even, like, watching it, it's not even like she's disrespecting his courtroom or him. Just stating the facts. She's just lawyering really good. And his little fragile ego is like, no, no, no. Then OJ Simpson is arrested for killing Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown in the time between the first and second Menendez trials. And obviously we all know that's a huge spectacle. So there was a lot of anxiety around that trial because one... If this black man is convicted of killing these two white people with the L.A. riots still fresh and with LAPD corruption present, the city will be burned to the ground. Like, there's just no way. And then two, the L.A. District Attorney's Office is going to be a laughingstock if they fail to convict multiple high-profile, what should be just slam-duck, open-and-shut cases. So anyways, O.J. is famously acquitted and it shocked the world and the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office did in fact look like idiots. And then the second Menendez trial begins eight days after OJ's acquittal. So between the DA's ruthless determination to convict, to convict, the judge basically fixing the outcome and then not allowing cameras in, which completely impacts the public's interest, it was a pretty quick and unfair trial. The prosecution was just as gross as the first time. They downplayed the abuse claims with statements like too much tennis and not enough hugs. And so what if they were abused? What difference does it make? And the defense really just didn't have a defense. Like they just couldn't say anything. So Eric and Lyle were found guilty and they were both sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The justice I did not know that. Yeah. The justice system is ridiculous. Yes. Like we already know this. I think They do need to pay for their crimes, but I also think the system completely failed them too. Absolutely. The point of the trial is to introduce the whole story, all the evidence, so that the jury can make an informed decision. And in the second trial, Judge Weisberg completely blocked that from happening. And most of the jurors later said that after the second trial was complete, if they had heard all of the testimony from the first trial, they would not have convicted the brothers. So Judge Weisberg's colleagues, like, they can't make sense of the rulings. They believe it was t- really evident he was biased for whatever reason. And he basically, like, they just, the way that his colleagues reference it is, like, he just changed the rules. That's what he did. And that's really awful. And it should really scare everyone because. No one's safe. No one's safe. It's really easy to look at this from the outside and be like, oh, well, I'm glad it happened this way because these killers are behind bars. But. What if you're in the hot seat or what if you're wrongfully accused of something or whatever? Like this shows that the system is flexible Mm -hmm. and that's really scary. Okay, so I had (laughs) 
I don't even want to like I feel bad for this I had two pages worth of me talking mad shit about women who write to and marry prisoners but but then after this <laughs> after I have also it. developed a uh, feeling for um Eric Eric and just the horrificness of this story I'm just like don't even want to take away from that so just just gonna say this in short they got lots of fan mail for women during the trials and Lyle's been married divorced and married again Eric married a woman named Tammy in 1999 and they're still married to this day so she just goes in for visitation yeah and she's she's a massive uh advocate for them and she I mean like yeah to her credit she has worked her ass off in trying to keep them relevant and try reached anybody to see if they could somehow get help but yeah, absolutely she's also he's been moved around california jails or prisons a few times and she she, uh, follows. she follows him she moves wow. her whole life well he yeah. uh, he seems like a lovable person yeah so i can see i don't blame tammy it's not like marrying charles manson Oh God! Yeah, no, Those not at all. Kooks. That's part of why I'm like, once you get into this and you hear them do interviews, you know they've done interviews throughout their time in prison, and they they're they're, they're not Charles Manson. Like that's a great example. It's like they're they're not sociopaths. No, they're not psychopaths. No. And I think the fact that intention wasn't looked at at all. I know. It's yeah. like I understand that murder is wrong, but if someone who is very against murder is sitting over here going, "Are you kidding me?" They just right. if anyone deserved it, it's these people. I know. So when it comes to the boy's family, Kitty's brother, Brian, has insisted all this time that the brothers concocted this story of abuse and that they deserve at the very least to spend their lives in prison and that he thinks they are spoiled brats who want to justify killing two beautiful and kind people in cold blood. So Brian's son, Al, is the one who lived with him as a teenager. He was, you know, he grew up well aware of this. And he says today as an adult, quote, my dad is a liar. He wasn't there and he didn't witness any of this. He asks me why I didn't tell him when I was a kid. And I say, it's because of how you're acting right now, like dismissive of it all. Meanwhile, Kitty's sister, Joan, she believes all of this. And she says that she resents her sister, Kitty, for not protecting her own children. Jose's mother and siblings have all remained in the brothers' lives and stand in support of them, not the deceased. Eric said that from the moment it happened, he has wished he could go back in time and take everything back and that the life he should have taken that day was his own, but he didn't. So he has to live with what he's done and spend the rest of his life trying to be a force of good. Eric and Lyle have poured their lives into helping other inmates. Eric is involved with mentoring in AA and NA groups and also runs a hospice care group for the elderly prisoners. He also paints and meditates. Lyle has become gentle and soft. He's more honest and open and caring. He's a liaison at the prison and is well-liked and respected among the guards and prisoners. So there's a new law in California that says evidence of child abuse that wasn't introduced in a past trial can now be used in an effort to file an appeal. And even though the bill is written in a way that it almost seems like it was created specifically for for the Menendez brothers, it hasn't resulted in filing a successful appeal. Eric said in 2017, quote, Looking back on who I was then from the lens of time of who I am now, I can see how immature and naive and juvenile my thinking was. It's not an excuse. I'm responsible for my crime. But I think that everything needs to be put into context. Of course it's juvenile. You're a child when it happened. Lyle says that ironically, he has found that his childhood has prepared him well for the chaos that is prison life. Which is super sad. 
Lyle says he's a fully formed adult now and looking at who he was then and what he did, it's almost difficult to comprehend that it's the same life because he's so far removed from it and he's so different. So since being sentenced, Lyle has repeatedly requested transfers to be housed in the same prison as his brother and he's always been denied. But in 2018, his latest request to transfer was approved. So Eric and Lyle were finally reunited when they were not only placed in the same prison, but actually housed in the same unit at a correctional facility in San Diego. It's amazing. So they are together now after being separated for 25 years. Everyone involved on the prosecution side had worked really hard to keep them separated as further punishment, which I feel like is stupid. It's like they're already going to spend life in prison. Why not let them be together? Yeah. Like who, what, who does that hurt? Like, even if you are, you know, disagree with all the empathy and all this stuff and you believe that they deserve to be in prison, why not just let them be together? They probably just argue that they're like a dangerous duo that like work off of each other. That's exactly what they argued, which is just not true. And if anyone is curious, the Menendez family fortune was drained during the two trials because of legal fees. Yes. Eric and Lyle were 18 and 21 when they killed their parents. And today they are 50 and 53. They've been incarcerated for the last 31 years. All of their appeals have been shut down, and without new evidence, they will remain in prison for the rest of their lives. One of the jurors from the first trial said, quote, These terrorist parents built two bombs that blew up and killed them. And that's the very tragic story of the Menendez family. That went so differently <laughs> I know. than I thought it would, and I'm so happy you said something and told this story. Yeah. I would have Me too. had a very incorrect narrative for the rest of my life if you had yeah, not done so i have forever i like, always I'm would scroll past their documentary on like netflix or hulu not interested i know it interest. i know it like i don't care about some rich kids you know like yeah. i don't like it just seems that story and that whole narrative that was sold is just so i don't think if this happened today that they there's no be, there's I, just no way like i yeah. i as much as i think that we have so much work to do anyways i hope that we have come a much further come much further huh, huh. come come, along come, come, come further more come further more <laughs> <laughs> no uh, come hither more i don't know um i'm like so interested in like what your mom thinks or what my parents think about from this, this time from the, today hearing us because i mean they were adults at that time like when watching the yeah. same thing you know so it's just like it was such massive it was as big as oj essentially i have absolutely were, no idea but i will be calling her and asking her today because no she's got to listen to it yeah but i'm just curious i just want to ask her what do you, what are your thoughts on the yeah. menendez trial yeah what do you think about the boys mm-hmm. and then i'll see what see what my i was gonna say her name and i'll see what she says i'm gonna um make both my parents listen to this i think my dad listens to this has has listened to this story or okay our podcast I think he's listened to our podcast before and his only feedback was just like there are too many (laughs) f-bombs that is a very parental and then my mom doesn't really like crime this yeah she doesn't really like crime but then she definitely followed like the oj stuff pretty closely Mm -hmm. um but i don't know how much she followed this i'm so curious like just people who were like adults then yeah like i was i was literally not even born when their first trial began. <laughs> I was, oh yeah. I was born 90. a few months later. Mm-hmm. It's funny because my, both my parents are very into true crime, but I could just see my dad not understanding like the concept of me telling a podcast and he'd be like, "How do, who are these people? How do you know these people? 
it's kind of like showing your uh, picture to your parents and then being yeah. like, and who are they? And yeah. it's like, these are just random humans. Yeah. These are celebrities. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah, parents are funny. Oh, but that's not applicable to this story. I didn't parents really... cannot. Some... some parents aren't funny. <laughs> we can cut that. Schmoosh out. Anyways, thank you for telling that very brutal, awful, horrific story. But it was very informative and I'm happy you did it. I'm glad too. Yeah, okay, I think well, it needed to be done, but I'm going to, I'm aiming for something different next time because this is just so heavy. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, going to do a survival story next week. Okay. So maybe that'll be a more uplifting note. Yeah, that's uplifting for sure. And I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be anything this heavy. I feel like I just need like a bottle of wine and. I was going to say a cigarette, like a, <laughs> but you've never smoked a cigarette <laughs> neither of us that. in our entire lives. No, I would choke. I always picture Ben Affleck though. Like his eyes closed on his doorstep, smoking oh. the cigarette. And I'm like, that is stress oh, <laughs> in a nutshell. In a photo. Um, yeah. Ben Affleck is like, I'm not like into that. No, he's look. like a ticking time bomb himself, like in my opinion. He's a ticking time bomb who is like, little. he always looks to me like he just rolled out of bed and is like, probably has a little bit of morning breath and like, oh. has some like, like not, yeah, not in like a snuggly way. No, his face reminds me of like when I take too many Tylenol PMs. Yes. But like all the time. Yes. He always looks like he's, he just woke up. Or is consistently taking Tylenol PMs throughout the day. Yeah. Anyways, this is not a Ben Affleck hate club. No, we're not <laughs> hating on him. He's like, he's, I mean, well, I'm not a fan of him either. I'm not a fan so. either. Like, okay. Yeah. But you're right. We're not going to focus on that. Anyways. I hope you guys have a great week. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Ashley. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.